Hi, Paul. Good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I'm Paul Selig. I work as a conscious channel. I work with guides who deliver uh, books through me. They've dictated, gosh, now I think seven texts that are in print and an eighth that's been completed um, on the embodiment of humanity at a higher level of, of consciousness and vibration. Um, I speak the books. I don't write them. They're actually now done publicly. I sit in a chair. I close my eyes. I hear. I whisper the, what I hear and repeat it. And those are the books. The unedited transcripts of those sessions become, you know, the books that are out. So that's what I do now. Um, I travel around the world and I I do workshops where the guides I, I work with come through me and teach and get people working with the energy that comes through them um, to support the individuals in their own awakening process. <laughs> so um, before we talk about your new book, could you please share with our listeners like what happened in 1987? So I know you have shared the story like quite a few times, but um, yeah, I think my listeners aren't familiar with your story. So. You know, I was um, I was about a year out of Yale. I had gotten a master's degree there. I had a list of things that I thought I needed to achieve in the world to make me okay. I got the whole list. I wasn't okay and really out of sheer necessity, not because I was looking to get spiritual. I was raised sort of an atheist. I began looking for something more. Um, I actually heard a voice once I began praying, telling me to get my act together, and I did. And shortly thereafter, there was this thing happening called the Harmonic Convergence. It was 1987. I heard people were going to be waking up, and I thought, well, if there is a God or something like a God, and one asked to be woken up, why would it want to say no? So I went up to the roof of the building that I lived in at the time, and I asked to be woken up. And I ended up having an experience of energy um, moving through my body. And for all I know, you know, in retrospect, I was hyperventilating. I may never know what happened up there, but it was an experience of energy moving from sort of the base of my being up, up, up through my body and out through the top of my head. And it was a very tangible experience of energy. And it was the first thing I'd ever really had like that. And um, I started seeing little lights around people after that, which was the beginning of a process that's really still ongoing. So You know, that was a moment in time and a marker for me personally that there was more going on. I think given who I was and what I came from, um, having something tangible was important to me and for me. Mm -hmm. to and the work that I do now is tangible for most people who encounter it. There's the energy that comes through and people can feel it, even people that have never worked with energy before. But that was all that was, you know, my path has been ongoing and unfolding since then. It really hasn't stopped. I haven't arrived. I wasn't lightened up on the roof. I think I, I got a bit of a, a lightning bolt, you know, through me to show me that there was perhaps <clears throat> more there than I thought there was. Um, but it was catalyzing in, in every way. So um, were you like seeking this experience or did it just suddenly happen? I was seeking something, I think, mm. I was something, some awareness that was my own. 
And I was operating, at least at that moment in time, from a place of innocence where I believed such things were possible and could happen. So it did, you know. I, I, I think I had stepped away from my own skepticism and cynicism long enough to make myself available for something. That's what I think happened. And truthfully, if my own nervous system induced it, I'll never know. You know, I don't know what it was. And I don't know that I need to. Afterwards, people said it sounded like a spontaneous Kundalini awakening or Shaktipa. I've heard soul awakening. For me, it was an experience that there was more. And I needed Uh, to go forward. And that was what it gave me, truthfully, more than anything else. And and, and how how did this, uh, this experience shape your life? How did it shape my life? My life was already being interrupted. You know, I was a rock and roll, hard partying playwright when I was <laughs> in blonde, Billy Idol hair and a lot of leather. And I quit drinking when I was 25 um, because I heard a voice telling me to get my act together and I listened to it. I was shocked. I'd never heard a voice before in my head. And when you hear a voice clear audiently, it's not necessarily like there's somebody in the room. It's a, a thought that interrupts all other thoughts. It almost mm-hmm. blocks out the running stream of narrative, at least in my case, that I may always have going. And it's a thought that's not your own. So my life was already interrupted by that and changed. And then what that experience did, I suspect, was put me on a path to begin to understand what was out there that was beyond what I thought could be. So, you know, I was sent shortly after that experience by a friend to go see an energy healer to get a context for my own openings. Mm. I didn't know what was going on. And um, this woman sent me to somebody else who worked with me for basically free for two years. I was so poor in those days. Um, and really in shock in a lot of ways, you know, it was my first time out of school. I was, you know, substance free. I was broke. I'd never really had to support myself other than working in nightclubs and bars, you know, and I wasn't doing that anymore. So that was who I was, but I could feel the energy when this person was working with me. And then I got the courage to ask to study myself. That took a long time. And I studied myself. I thought, you know, I was the only person in the room that probably didn't have permission to be there. And, you know, I had imposter syndrome and wanted to run from the class every day. But I will say I was a very diligent student and I began to open up psychically very quickly um, as a result of that. Um, It was the height of the AIDS epidemic in New York City. People were dying my age all around me, people I knew and loved. Um, And I was invited out of the blue to volunteer at a center for people who had been diagnosed with life-challenging illness. Um, I would show up on Sundays for a few hours every week and um, work with people. And I found that when I had my hands on people's bodies, I began to hear things for them, which was the beginning of the clear audience. So if I had my hand in your chest and I heard the name Marcus, And I don't know any Marcus. I'd say, who's Marcus? You might say my father, my lover, my brother, my dog, you know, my friend. It doesn't really matter. And that would prompt a release of energy. And as I kept getting confirmation 
for what I was hearing, I began to trust it more. And then I began to do a group that met in my apartment and it met for about 18 years. I had another life. I was teaching college all this time, you know, and loving that. That was my work and I enjoyed it. And I benefited from it personally in many ways. But I did the little group in my apartment and I began channeling there. And as I continued, the ability or the skill became more refined. And in about 2008, the guides that were working through me began to lecture, which hadn't been happening before. I'd been a heavy smoker and I quit in 2008 and that seemed to free up my nervous system a lot. And all of a sudden I was, you know, speaking these lectures. And um, once I became willing to record the lectures and transcribe them, which I had not been wanting to do because I didn't really want a record of it. And I was very conscious about the whole thing, even after all those years. But once I became willing to do that and saw that what was coming through me were these perfect, you know, lectures or essays that required no editing at all. And I had been a writer with terrible, terrible writer's block, so I was amazed at this and looked forward every week to doing it. Once I became willing, the guides began dictating books. And that's been it ever since. The first book, I Am the Word, was published in 2010. It was dictated in 2009. And since then, they've done close to a book a year since then, <laughs> about 30 days. The first book took two, two and a half weeks every day. The second book, which was about 500 pages, took about 30 days every day. And now I don't channel every day. It's, you know, I'm doing them now in front of students and workshops and groups. So if I do a five day workshop, the guides will likely deliver about 80 pages of a book in front of those students, you know, and then the next weekend, if I'm teaching someplace else, they may deliver another 20. You know what I mean? It's just how it works. Mm. But I like that the books are being delivered in a public forum. Um, it's great to have a witness for it. And also the guides are teachers, so they need students. The initial books were spoken over the telephone. There was somebody on the other end because there has to be an active listener. But I would type up the recordings myself of those sessions. And now we just send the, the videotape off to a transcription service and it's done. You know, I don't have anything to do with it until I read what was delivered. And I retain maybe a third of what the guides have been talking about in a lecture. So I go back and read it only for content. Um, none of the work is edited. Maybe in one book I might have mispronounced or stepped over two or three words because I'm speaking so fast, you know, in channel. But that's the extent of any changes, you know. Um, if I drop a the in a sentence where I'm speaking too fast, it's implicit, or you can hear the the on the whisper um, and not on the repeat, um, we'll go back to the whisper, which was the original, the original dictation. So, uh, Paul, because you've said that you can become the person someone asks about, like, how did you know back then that you weren't imagining things or weren't fantasize, uh, fantasizing and, yeah. In my case, which is interesting, the work that I do has always been for other people. So I am not, I don't like to read for myself. I'm not always accurate for myself because mm -hmm. I have an investment in the outcome. But if I have no, if I have no investment in whether you get the job or not, and I tune into you, I can tune into your ability to do the job. It's very easy to be neutral 
for other people, you're talking about another skill set, which I have, which is they call me a medium for the living. I have this odd ability to step into other people and um, become them. So it's a way of reading, I suppose. It's a form of clairsentience. It's easiest, I suppose, to think of me as a radio. And when I'm channeling, I'm on one radio station, which is my guides. If I'm reading for somebody, you're the station that I'm tuned into. And if you then ask me to ask what's going on with your sister, and you give me her name, I tune my dial to your sister. And I'm hearing her broadcast. And I'll often somatize or become the person. I mean, it's been filmed. It's very interesting. Um, you know, it's been it's been filmed a fair amount at this point, you know, because I haven't met these people and they're, they're related to other people or the spouse of somebody or, you know, somebody that I couldn't know happens in my workshops all the time. Um, so I know that I'm not making it up, but it's the other person that can confirm the information or the person. So if I start looking like your ex-girlfriend, when I tune in and make that face that you recognize, you'll go, oh, yeah, that's her. I didn't know that I could do that until I was doing it. Um, I didn't know I could do this stuff until I was doing it. And then it had to be proven out. So I was reading. People started coming just to want to talk to my guides. That's how I began reading for people. And I was uh, reading for this young woman, and she mentioned her father's name. And I had my eyes closed, and she gasped, and I opened my eyes. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, you started to look just like him. And I was surprised by that. But then I found out it happened every time if I did it. And once I sort of surrendered to that a bit more, there was information to be had. Um, you know, and often what I'm getting makes no sense to me. I was reading for somebody um, about a year ago, you know, and I tuned into him. And I crouched over like that. And I said, I don't know what this means. He said, I do. I'm a skier, you know, and that was him with the skiers on the mountain. But it meant nothing to me because I'm not a skier. So I couldn't recognize the pose or the gesture. So, you know, it's all about truthfully, it is about the validation of the information. I find that the reading, which is the psychic work I do, helps me to trust more the channeled work that comes through because you can validate the psychic work. The channel work, you can feel the energy that comes through. I mean, it's palpable for most people when they're in a trafficking. Um, and that's the proof, but they're teaching concepts of embodiment, which are fair, mm -hmm. suspect advanced metaphysics. And, you know, I, I don't come from this. You know, I'm not a new age. I'm not a good new ager. If you want to call me a new ager, I'm not. You know, I'm I have a couple of crystals there in a box someplace. You know what I mean? I'm not, <laughs> not, not in the, the camp. And um, I never really have been that much. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a little bit of a skeptic. I question the work that comes through me still after all these years. And I feel, how could I not? And I don't think I'm better than other people or more enlightened than anybody. I really don't. You know, I show up as best I can for this curious phenomena that seems to be of great help to many people. And I have to leave that to them to decide whether this is truthful or not or helpful or not, because my job is to sit in the chair and take the dictation. That's what I show up for. 
So uh, when you when you recognize that you can hear those voices and that you can read people, like where you scared or what was going through your head when you when you realize that you had those capabilities, I was mostly fascination and then wanting to understand it. I mean, I've been fortunate at different times in my life to have mentors to show up or people who do what I do, um, mm. who explain things for me. Um, I think around the time that I started to tune into people and read, somebody showed up in my life who had you know, been reading for 45 years and became a dear friend who could explain some of what I was experiencing because she understood it. Um, it's that kind of a thing for me. When I first started doing energy healing and working with energy, see that changed everything because I could feel it. And if you could feel it, you couldn't fake it, you know, even when so I, what's that? Sorry to interrupt energy healing. What, what's that? Well, when I studied healing and I used to have my hands on people, that was a form of energy healing that I had studied. Mm. It was uh, a technique that was being taught. And so I had a structure for what I was doing, but the ability to feel energy and to read the energy was life-changing for me because suddenly it meant that there was more than my reality had told me that there could be. I mean, if you can put your hand about eight inches over your chest and feel the current of energy pouring out of it, and you can feel it, or you somebody else's chest and you can feel it, that changes things. It changes the paradigm of what reality is made of. So in the early days, when I was in my very early 30s, when this started with you know the hands-on work, I was scared at times because I was having experiences of phenomena that I didn't understand and um, didn't know what was what. And it was all very dramatic and sort of exotic. And now I am completely uninterested in drama and exoticism around this stuff. I think that those are stages people go through when they're opening up. You people want to feel special and, oh, my God, what is this? And it's terrible. <laughs> you know, and I understand that I've been there, you know, totally was there. But I, I suspect you grow past that in time as you sort of begin to trust your own energetic system, as you begin to trust that people are in their own authority, you know. I mean, I don't tell people what to do when I read. I don't do a lot of predictions. You know, people say, who am I going to marry? And I say, listen, I could probably tell you why you're not married, you know, and what the block is and why how to help you move that yeah. block. But I may not tell you who you get. I've done it and been accurate, you know, on many occasions. But that's not my primary practice. And I always tell people I don't tell them what to do, and my guides never tell people what to do. Hmm. The only time I've ever told somebody what to do was when I was getting very clear information that somebody was in physical danger, usually a spouse that was being battered. And, um, and then I will say, do you have a place to go to? This, you, do you have people to call? Do you have a system in place? Should you need to leave? Because you may well need to leave. And then I can, and usually I get that information because I'll tune into somebody and what I'll do, because there's a, a litany of physical gestures that all mean things. If, if you said, tune into my sister, Jane, and I, <laughs> and Jane goes like that, that usually means <laughs> trying to hit her, you know, 
if I tune into you when you were a child in relationship with your father and you do that, that usually means your father had a temper. Do you understand? So certain things all certain things in a reading. Just like now, if I ever do that in a reading, I'll know, okay, that means skiing. You understand, but I didn't know it at first. But once you get the affirmation, your system works. But the guides I work with are highly respectful of free will. And we get to choose, you know, so they're not going to tell you, do this, do that. And the fear that I had at the beginning was a lot about my own responsibility to this, because I don't want to be responsible for somebody not going to the doctor or taking not taking their medicine. People say to me, oh, should I go to the doctor? I say, yeah, go to the doctor. I have nothing against Western medicine. It can help many people. You know what I mean? I'm not a doctor. That's not what I do. Um, I can feel into you and feel what's going on around an issue. But people have to maintain their own sense of of knowing finally or claim that or learn to claim that. So the guides I work with are really empowering people. They're not telling people what to do. And that's important. I don't think I could work any other way, truthfully. Mm. So, uh, Paul, I always love to hear those stories and talk to people like you. But um, there are like a lot of people out there that might think this is all bogus. So uh, what would you tell to them? Oh, I don't care, truthfully, anymore. <laughs> And all I do is in my experience, which for me at this point is fairly normal. You know, I wasn't looking to get known for this. I actually quite liked the life that I'd created. I was on the faculty of New York University for 25 years. I liked what I did. I ran a graduate program at a small college in Vermont for 18 of those years. Um, and I loved it. You know, I loved the life that I created. And this, in some ways, was my hobby. I would have people once a week and do this. I wasn't really looking to be known for it. When in 2009, the book started coming, um, there was no way for me to pretend it wasn't happening. My name was on the cover of a book. Up until that point, I had a website without my name on it and without my photograph. And you had to know somebody to book an appointment with me. I was much, much too cautious. So in terms of the skeptics, listen, I'm a skeptic, too, in many ways. And I don't actually watch other channelers work or read their work. I read half of a Seth book when I was a graduate student and found it fascinating, but I didn't finish it. And I think it actually left a big imprint on me. But I, I wasn't ready for those kinds of things. And I think a fair amount of stuff is being passed off as channeling that may not be. You know, and that I understand, too. People are coming in at different levels. You know, the guides that I work with don't teach in fear. They do not tell people to be afraid, you know, and I'm cautious around that stuff when I hear about it, because that can be manipulative and I don't want to be part of that. So to the skeptics, I say, you know, you're on your own path and you'll find your own discovery of whatever and whenever or you won't. You know, in some ways, had I not gone back to that healing class that I took when I was about 30, 31, um, I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you today. And I wanted to run the room, but I made the choice to go back anyway. And it indeed did change the trajectory of my life, you know, and I'm still dealing with the ramifications of that choice. But, you know, I'm an older guy. I'm pushing, you know, I'm 57 right now. I've been doing this 
in one form or another for over 25 years. And um, I'm willing to show up for it. That's my job. I'm willing to show up for this stuff. And even when I don't understand it, and mostly when I don't want to do it, because there are t very often I don't want to do it. But the guides I work with override me. I've actually had to show up and channel right after putting my pet to sleep, you know, or doing things that were hard and heartbreaking or having an argument with somebody I care about and then having to show up and channel thinking, I can't do this. There's no way in the world this is going to come through. And then the guides come through and they override my emotional system and deliver a pristine lecture, often referencing what I'm going through so that they can move me beyond it or so that I can have some context for it. But for the most part, their job isn't about caretaking me. Their job is to teach their students and they show up for that. And I have to be there for that to happen. So that's the level of art, you know, and the radio. That's my job. <laughs> so um, you have like thought about so so many things over the years and helped so so many people. So what have been your personal like most profound insights that you've had like over the years? You know, I mean, it changes. I suspect I've settled into this as my life now a bit more. I only left my academic life about four, four and a half years ago, even though the books had started being published before then. But I held on to my own life, my old life and my old jobs tightly because that was how I knew myself in the world and it gave me a sense of security. You know, channeling has never gotten me a date. You know, it's not it's just not a sexy profession in most circles. People think you're nuts or they're not interested or it's not for them or they're fascinated, but it's something other. So, you know, this is now what I do and how I show up. And I've had to surrender to that choice that I've made. But the most profound insights, and in some ways, I would suggest it's less the insights than the experiences that I've had through this yeah. that have been really transformational because those experiences in some ways are bypassing the intellect and logic, you know, and like once you feel energy running through your body, you know, and you can't ignore it and you're in a room full of people and everybody's feeling the same thing and you can't ignore it, you, you move into a different way of being. I mean, in terms of the way the guides teach, There are things they teach that they always say, and I believe them to be true. And I do my best to live by them. I don't always. Do you have a few examples for us? Yeah. You can't be the light and hold another in darkness. It's mm. a very simple one. You cannot be the light and hold another in darkness. They say it's the height of hypocrisy and it's the problem of most religions now, which is there's this division in us versus them, which they say cannot be so. Um, they say that the action of fear is to claim more fear. And they say, look at every choice you've ever made in fear and see what it got you. And more than likely, you will see that you got more fear. So to the extent that I don't make my choices based in fear, I begin to have another experience of my life. Um, I mean, there are many, many more. 
what you put in darkness, they say, or who you put in darkness calls you to that darkness. Hmm. So, you know, they say you can't lift the evil man to what they call the upper room, which is a higher level of consciousness or vibration, because you have made him evil. And by making him evil, you've aligned to him at a level of energy. You know, like attracts like, in other words. So in order to lift that human being, you have to release your ideas of him. And your ideas of him or her are most likely born in historical context and meaning, which is inherited. You know, so we have to in some ways unlearn. Um, how we see the world in order to be able to truly see what the guides say is the inherent divine that must exist in all things. I mean, they do say, you know, it is all things. The source of all things is present in all manifestation, not just the things you like, you know, or agree with, you know. So we mm. need this polarity and the systemic place of division, which they say isn't true. The guides say who you truly are, who I truly am. They call it the true self or the divine self. And they say the aspect of the creator that seeks to realize itself through each of us is present in each of us and is asking to be known through us. But we've sort of come to rest so completely in a misidentification with the personality structure of the ego that, you know, we can't see our way out of it. And they say, you know, the small self can't fix the small self. This doesn't happen, you know. So, I mean, there's a lot that they say. I mean, they've got, gosh, now, you know, seven or eight books worth of stuff that they've said. But those are some of the things that I hear often when they teach um, because they reinforce those things because those are easy things to apply. What you damn damns you back. What you bless blesses you in return. It's really easy. You understand? Mm. So, um, because you said that the experience uh, experiences are so profound, like, have there been over the years like any experiences for you personally that scared you, or maybe you could, yeah, do do feel like very very profound moments come to mind where you thought, oh man. This is this is crazy or this is amazing. So I mean it's it's you see for me now it's kind of the norm, you know, hmm. it's not that crazy. Um I'm surprised when things happen. You know, here's one thing, and it happens all the time, and I don't know how it happens. Somebody just filmed a workshop where this was happening and they were filming me while it was happening. So I'm curious to see the footage. But, you know, when, I, um, when I'm doing these workshops, sometimes the guides I work with will step more fully into me um, and sort of become me a bit more. My, I'm still there. I just recede. It's like I climb into the back seat of the car and let them come forward. And they stand before each person and attune them. Um, but I'm told that my eyes turn bright blue. Pale, pale, ice blue, you know, and I have dark eyes. I have hazel eyes. I don't have blue eyes. And that's been going on for years, and I don't understand it. People say, well, he's probably wearing a blue shirt. Well, I'm rarely not wearing a black shirt. You know, I've been wearing black since I was in the Patti Smith fan club when I was 15 years old, you know, back on Cape Cod. So, you know, it's not the blue shirt because I own one of them, and I don't wear it when I'm channeling because it's not flattering enough. Um, so there's that. 
the big experiences, the big experiences are the ones that are actually happening for other people and they're not frightening. When somebody stands up in front of the group and they let go of something huge, you can literally feel the old energy pouring out of them. It's like wind, like somebody's become a human air conditioner. And that's all that old energy releasing. So then, then the whole room can feel it. And that's quite something. And conversely, when they work with their attunements, because the guides attune people to work with the energy that they bring through. Um, when people work with the attunements, they're able to claim or make high claims or true claims of vibration for others. And so when you see somebody standing up in the room and making one of these claims for a hundred other people that happen to be there and the whole room feels the energy coming off the person and it comes through in waves. Um, mm -hmm. It's really quite something. So there are those kinds of things, the experiences that scared me in retrospect, I was probably always scaring myself. Nothing that was happening was scary. You know, um, you know, I've, I, the one thing that I don't like that I have to contend with, and I'll say this, when somebody's talking crap about me or they're angry with me, you ever hear the old saying, your ears must have been ringing? I don't know if they have that in Germany, but it's one we have here. Your ears must have been ringing means somebody's talking about you. But when somebody's talking crap about me and it's a male or a gay woman, it can be of the right ear. I literally can feel like I got a, somebody poking me in the ear with a, a hot fork, you know, left, left, usually <laughs> female. And uh, the challenge is, I don't know who it is. I don't know what it's about. Sometimes I do. If I feel it and then I open my email and I see somebody was writing me a really angry email, that was the energy, you know, and I can, you know, very often it'll, it'll become, it'll become apparent. But for all I know is somebody just reading one of these books and saying, I can't take this crap and throwing it across the room. So that's the downside of clairsentience for me. And my guides have said to me, well, as long as you care what people think about you, this is going to be an issue. So it's still my work to move beyond this. People have the right to think whatever they want or feel whatever they want. I do think that when we're directing our feelings and our wants to others, that there's an energetic component that we're ultimately responsible for, frankly. Um, thought is creative and all of those things. But that's really my job is to lift to a level that that doesn't hit me at, which means keeping my vibe high so that I don't have to go into an encounter with a lower. That makes any sense. Yeah. So, uh, Paul, because I think um, there are a lot of people that are interested, like in all those like spiritual experiences. And um, there are also quite a few people that are interested in psychedelics mm -hmm. and seeking those experiences through psychedelics. So I'd love to hear your opinion on psychedelics. And yeah. Well, I mean, the guides have talked about this. I, I've done a few interviews with my friend Aubrey Marcus, where he's gone into this with the mm -hmm. guides specifically. Um, you know, I stopped doing anything when I was 25, you know, um, and, and it's not that I consider plant medicine to be addictive. I know it's not, um, but it's a door that I've kept closed for myself for personal reasons. I also, and I may change my mind one day, you know, but for now, it's what kind of reasons like, 
Well, the fact that I don't drink anymore or smoke mm. pot or do anything, um, my abilities kicked in when I stopped doing those things, quite frankly. And I don't know how my system is wired to be able to do what I do. It's been developed over many years. So I haven't really felt called to do plant medicine. But what I also like is the fact that in my case, for at least the time being, I feel like I am being routed in another way to these experiences. And what I find interesting is people come to the workshops um, who are quite experienced with psychedelics and plant medicine, and they're saying they're having comparable experiences in the workshops without the plant medicine because they're feeling the energy, you know, and they're having these other altered experiences. So I actually am not opposed to psychedelics at all. Um, I think that they are catalytic, though, and this is what I mean. I think that they're catalytic to higher experience. I think the real important thing is that those experiences then be integrated so mm. that you basically have head in the clouds, feet on the ground. I read sometimes for people that have done a lot of it, and they're just way out. They're not really in their bodies, you know. They're not integrating the information. It's all cosmic, and in fact it is. But some of these so, people... So what, what do you mean by that? Could you please unpack that for us? What do I mean by... Well, to be out of the body basically means to not be grounded, you know, mm -hmm. and not be grounded in taking care of oneself in one's daily life is problematic. So I think for many people, it's a wonderful thing and a catalyzing thing, and many of my students work with it, and I know that. And as I said, one day I may choose to. Um... But I also read for people on occasion that are back living in their parents' basements and don't see the need to have a job anymore because it doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I have concern about that. You know, if it becomes a way to escape being fully present and not support one in being fully present in a higher way, then I, then I think it's not always the best thing. But, you know, many things can catalyze us in many different directions. And I'm very pleased that people are opening up to their own potential in a higher way through these things. I think it's quite positive. You know, again, I just think it's about how one integrates the experiences that one has so that one doesn't get addicted to the experience of being way out there, but learn how to, you know, sort of incongruence with a higher awareness that one has been gifted with. Yeah, so so for me personally, I'm really, really interested in psychedelics, but I haven't used them. But I talked to quite a few people on the podcast about them. But um, I would love to hear, like, do you personally think that, um, like, quote-unquote, uh, spiritual experiences when you are sober are worth more, like, quote-unquote, worth more um, than spiritual experiences on, on psychedelics? Well, I mean, one is, is it the word exogenic? It's being gifted to you from the outside. One is being gifted to you from the inside. That's the difference. Mm. Is that a value judgment? No, there are different ways, perhaps, to the same place. Um, I think in my case, my experiences have not been prompted by a substance. That's all. But that's not to devalue the other's experience. For some people, you know, one of my friends who's a, a student of my work, 
um, showed up at one, one of my workshops years ago when I was first beginning to do them publicly at the Esalen Institute. And she was a nun who had been given my first book during an ayahuasca ceremony in the Amazon. And she's great. And she's completely grounded and completely present. And, you know, there are shamans that I know that are working with this material that comes through me in ceremony, um, you know, and working with other people with the information and the claims that my guides work to their benefit. So I, you know, I don't know that one is lower or higher. And I think that that's value judgment in some ways. I think it depends on who, you know, there are people that can have, I suppose, a large experience and misinterpret it. You know, I've met these people and they can be lovely people, but they say, I'm told that I'm now the second coming. And I go, brother, you know, you and (laughs) all the second coming. In fact, there is a second coming. It's everybody. So the idea of people feeling marked specialness, whether it's coming from any kind of experience that then I get a little cautious because that usually is the small self or the egoic structure needing to make itself special, you know? And I think if you're truly doing this kind of work, you begin to understand pretty quickly that nobody's special because we're all special. We're all unique. And my guides have said so many times, one human being is not higher than the next. You know, and they say, you know, the millionaire and the beggar are both here learning lessons about abundance, but in just different ways. It's you that make one higher than the other. That's a cultural construct, you see. So we're very bound by these cultural ideas that we've inherited that in many ways bind us. And I suspect that one can take his or her spirituality and do the same with that. The word used to be called spiritual materialism. And I just don't buy it anymore, you know, but I've been around a little bit, you know, I mean, this is what happens when you stick around the block. When I first started opening up, you used to hear things, and this is back in the 1980s, um, I'm sure you were not even born yet or something. (laughs) Long time ago, yeah. Long time ago in the 80s. Um, I remember hearing, well, you know, the Archangel Michael is channeling in Brooklyn, but if you want a really good experience, go to see Gabriel for once. <laughs> and it was crazy. If you think it was crazy, you know, it's the way there's rock stars, you know, I don't think it works that way. Here's what I do believe. Truth is true. What is true is always true. And I don't care mm. if that in the plant medicine ceremony, in an ashram, in meditation, on a mountaintop. I don't care. You may get that bathing your child or making love to your partner. There are all kinds of ways the realization of the inherent divine in all things can be known. And that's what I think. And I don't necessarily think that one way is higher or better than the next, because I suspect we all get met by spirit as we are willing to be met. And, you know, your landscape and my landscape have, you know, things in common. But what's going to wake you up may not be what's going to wake me up. You know what I mean? And I think spirit is smarter than that. And I think we do have an opportunity now because I think people are waking up all over the place and by different means. And I think that's a very good thing. So, Paul, um, 
I would love to hear, and I think everybody who is now listening to this episode would love to hear, like, um, how do we interpret it, so, uh, in, interpret those experiences the right way, like all those spiritual experiences? Because, like, for instance, like, I think that awakening, enlightenment, and all those uh, words, um, people nowadays are so confused because they mean different things to different people. So, uh, yeah. Well, the guides I work with teach realization. They don't teach enlightenment. And they mm -hmm. say to realize is to know. To be in your own knowing is to realize. They work with these claims of truth. They call them attunements. And one of the attunements is I know who I am in truth. I know what I am in truth. I know how I serve in truth. I am free. I am free. I am free. Now, the small self is not who speaks those words. The true self is the one who knows, who realizes. So if you comprehend that it's only the true self that can know who it is or who he or she is as and through you and you make that claim, you're aligning to your own potential to know and to realize who is identity, what is manifestation, service is expression, how you express yourself most fully as the true self is how you serve. I suspect that true revelation or realization is always catalytic to change in some way. You know, when you know, you know. And the guides of sentence, you have to understand or learn the difference between thinking and knowing. And you can do this now. The guides teach this all the time. Think of a time in your life when you knew something. I knew I was in love. I knew I got the job. I knew the relationship was over. I knew he or she was dying. Anytime that you knew, remember what it was like to know. And then go to what it's like to think. I think I know how this podcast will be received. I think I know what I'm having for dinner tomorrow. I think I know how long, I know how long I'm going to live. And you'll see the difference. And the simple answer is when you know, you're not questioning. There's no question. Mm, you think there's all Very powerful. You're always sort of working the pieces and the true self knows. So the true self is who can say, I know who I am in truth. Okay. Very powerful. So uh, Paul, could you please speak about your new book and yeah, who is it for? What, what is it about? So uh, yeah. Well, it's the, the beginning of the third trilogy that the guides have dictated. It's called Beyond the Known Realization. It's book one of the Beyond the Known trilogy. And it's the teaching of what they call the upper room. The guides say all of us are living in uh, an octave. They don't talk about dimensions. They talk about octaves for whatever reason. It's probably because I flunked science. But they say the language of science is often outdated and music is not. So we're all operating in an octave. It's got high and low notes, but it's an octave. And that's our shared reality. And they say any piece of music, any note can be played in a higher octave. It's about transposing the music to be played in the higher key. They say the next octave up, they call it the upper room, which they talk about as they use the term Christ mind, which is not a religious term. It's a level of consciousness. And they say that what they're doing in this book is supporting us in translating our own being and our level of alignment to the octave that expresses above. And that's the teaching of the upper room. It's a trippy book. Um, it's 
I tend to think that people might benefit more from going back to some of the earlier books to get a handle on this one. But many people seem to be just finding this book and having big experiences with it. The thing about the books is, and this is true for all the books, the guides say the books are operating on two different levels. There are the words on the page which provide an intellectual context, but that the real book is the energy that informs the words. And um, people are feeling the books. So if you go to the reviews on Amazon, people are saying, for all the books, I'm reading the book and my body's vibrating. I'm reading the book and I'm seeing auras. People are having these experiences with the guides and with the phenomena as they experience it. And these aren't, you know, stupid people. I have to say, the books that come through me and the teachings that come through me are not convenient. You know what I mean? It's not the easy feel-good stuff. I wish it were. I'd be channeling probably before thousands of people you know, at once. <laughs> it's not the easy stuff. It's not, and this isn't to denigrate anybody else's work. Everybody's teaching where they're, what, what they're the lessons that come through them are. And I can only speak what comes through me. Um, but it's not convenient, which means it does mean that you may be confronted with your ideas of who you are and what reality has been through your individual and collective experience. Because what they're doing is they're moving us up a level to where we can see and know things in a higher way. So, uh, Paul, at the end, I always ask every guest of mine five very quick and short questions. But um, before I ask those five questions, like, could you please give our listeners your best advice on spirituality, truth, true self, spirit, all those things that we, we talked about today? So I would say what don't would you tell them? Just remember the action of fear is to claim more fear. What the guide said, what you put in darkness calls you to that darkness. You can't be the light and hold another in darkness. I mean, those three things are, are key. Um, let me ask if the guides have anything. I'm not going to channel on this, but I'm going to see if they want to tell me anything. And truthfully, Please. I tell them all to love one another so, they, so that they can be loved. Stop hoarding love. It's not a commodity. It's God. Let God be love as you is what I'm actually hearing, which is surprising. That's not the normal thing that I would normally hear, but that's what I'm getting. So I'll leave it at that. So what was the, what else was there, please? So everything's fine. At the end, I always ask five very quick and short questions. So, um, Before I ask those, could you please tell everybody where can they connect with you on the social webs, buy your books, uh, find your seminars, and so on and so forth? Well, my website is paulselig.com, P-A-U-L-S-E-L-I-G.com. It's got a calendar. It's got videos. I have a subscription site. I channel most Wednesday evenings in the U.S., but we send everybody the the tape within 24 hours. So we have people joining us from all over the world. That information is there too. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and the, the usual places. Um, but the website really is sort of the, the clearinghouse for events and where, you know, where, where people can find 
where I'll be channeling and, and you know, how to access the books or the recordings and things like that. Got it. So uh, the first out of the five question is, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Huh. The Sermon on the Mount, which was by a New Thought teacher, Emmett Fox. Um, and what he's teaching is I'm very much in alignment with what the guides teach, and I'm an admirer of, of the integrity of that book. I'm trying to think. Sure. Well, I mean, you know, my own aesthetics, you know, I was a playwright, so you know, my own aesthetic was, was very much my own Aristotle's poetics had a huge impact on me because it, it taught me to understand how we, we experience narrative on this plane. It's not my favorite book, but I taught it for 25 years, so I understand it. Um, I loved Carson McCullers book, The Ballad of a Sad Cafe. It's one of my favorite novels and one of my favorite teachings about love. It's not a happy story, but it's a beautiful story. Um, if you want to read about love and true love, I suppose, go to, you know, Rilke or other people, you know, who can speak to that, you know. But um, third book, let me think if there is a third. <laughs> yeah, there is, which is a strange book, but it influenced me enormously, which was Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is uh, was an underground book in the 50s, early 60s. But, you know, you know, I've never been very interested in prettying up or, you know, masquerading the human condition, which is challenging and in and, and many, many ways. And that's the book that really lays it out there and the pain of being in a body and being in an experience and being an outsider and all of those things. So I think those would be a few books that mean things to me. <laughs> so uh, the second question is, um, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? <laughs> that I have enjoyed the most? Yep. Oh, my goodness. Movies. <laughs> It's hard because I taught screenwriting, so there's too many of them. I'm not going to give you, I'm just going to give you, I'm not give you the top three. I'll just give you three. Um, okay. The Wizard of Oz mm -hmm. um, was always since childhood. Um, Woody Allen's film, Another Woman, I quite love. And uh, Frank Perry's film, Last Summer, I really love. But I also really love Children of Men, you know? I mean, there's a lot I love. There's a lot of films that I love. I, I tend to, to like stories that have to do with the idea of personal apocalypse, personal revelation. You know, Lars Van Trier's work, some of it, Breaking the Waves, I really liked, even though it's a hard film to watch, but I understood it. Um, but anyway, you know, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so uh, the third question is, um, what, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Most useful product or service? Once a week. 
I have somebody who cleans my apartment. I'm so happy because I travel all the time and I get to come back home to a clean apartment. <laughs> if there's nothing more depressing than getting off a 10 hour flight and looking at your unmade bed, you know, from when you had to get up <laughs> in the morning to catch the outgoing flight. So this week I'm very grateful that I'm sitting in a clean place. So I will <laughs> primary one today. Got it. So um, the fourth question is, um, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And you mentioned a couple already, but um, what comes to mind right now? So the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, the big one, I suspect, is I'm not who I think I am. But who I think I am is a construct and it's an idea of a person being in the world who looks a certain way, has a certain background, believes certain things, but I don't think I'm those things. I think those are ways that I know myself in the world in commerce and agreement with other people. But I think I do get that this is an idea and that who I am is something different and perhaps even unnameable. The true self, I think, that part that we may call God, I get that that's who I truly am. Is that my experience of myself all the time? No, it's not. And perhaps someday it will be. Got it. So uh, the last question for the day is, Paul, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? Don't be so frightened. That's what I would say. Don't be so frightened. And I would also say, don't be so dramatic because it's not that terrible. <laughs> you know, 20 year old was high drama. So I would like to with that. <laughs> so, uh, Paul, thank you so, so much for sharing your story. I really enjoyed listening to you today. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.